everyone. Thanks for joining our webcast. Today, we're pleased to present a conversation with Kent Beck and Eric Rees. I'm Melissa Tinatigan, executive producer of the Lean Startup Conference, happening December 9 to 11. Visit leanstartup.co for more information. First, can everyone hear me? Great. Our speakers today are Kent Beck and Eric Rees. Kent has been a consistent innovator in software development for 30 years. He currently works at Facebook, programming products and infrastructure, coaching, and studying software engineering. Eric Reese is the co-host of the Lean Startup Conference, an entrepreneur, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Lean Startup. A few housekeeping notes. We'll take questions from the audience via the live chat. If you'd like to ask a question, please flag it by starting with a Q colon before asking the question. The speakers will answer questions in the second half of the webcast. This is a one-hour program, and the recording will be available a few days after this live webcast. Take it away, guys. Hello. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to uh, another Lean Startup webcast. This time, I am incredibly excited and quite proud, frankly, to have uh, as our guest someone whose work has influenced me profoundly over the years and has also, I have discovered uh, more recently, one of the nicest people you will ever meet in the business. Uh, I'm proud to say my friend Kent Beck. Yes, there's no one else coming behind you, Kent. That's, that's you <laughs> talking about. And just for those Thank of you, you I, I just realized on my shelf right here, I have my old, old beat-up copy of the first book of Kent's, but not the last that I read, Extreme Programming Explained. I always love the subtitle, Embrace Change, uh, which I, I think of often uh, when uh, I have been in the work that I've done because change really is the only constant. Anyway, Kent, thank you. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you very much for, for having me. Um, I'm uh, d delighted. Uh, I do want everybody to know that uh, Eric strictly refused to prepare for this conversation, so I have no idea what's coming. I may say things that I don't intend to say, and I think, frankly, I'm hoping that I can get Eric to say some things like that, too. So we'll see yeah. what happens. I bear so. full responsibility for this, because here's the thing. Uh, we, we deliberately wanted to leave this uh, this webcast uh, without much of a formal agenda because uh, we want to keep it as casual as we could. Uh, Kent and I have a lot to talk about. And before we get to audience questions, I know a lot of you will have questions. Uh, I know one of the really fun things about the Lean Start community is we have people from really different backgrounds who join. Uh, among software developer, developers and professional software engineers, Kent really is one of those people that needs no introduction. Um, but for a lot of people on this webcast, maybe don't know Ken as well. I think yeah, maybe we could start a little bit with your background. I think even for those of us who followed you for a long time, I'm really curious kind of your personal story. Like, how did you get into this line of work? You know, a lot of us know you as the creator of Extreme Programming, uh, signatory in the Agile Manifesto. Uh, looking back a little further, uh, you know, one of the really advocates for design patterns and a lot of good software engineering practice going back a long time. So there was a time when you were just a regular old software engineer like a lot of us. And fast forward, now you're uh, a software development luminary. Like, so help us fill in some of that timeline in between. How, how did you get started kind of teaching and coaching people you know, with these new concepts? Well, I, uh, I'm not sure I was a regular software developer like you. I think I was worse, <laughs> um, which forced me to develop habits to make up for my shortcomings. And then, uh, and then I noticed that those habits have, uh, have wider application. Um, I was thinking about this in the run-up, re remembering some of my early days. And I can remember going to my first ever computer science lecture as a freshman at the University of Oregon, walking out of the lecture, which had been about formal proofs and how in the future software developers would only ever make five or six programming mistakes in their entire careers and uh, and thinking I am going to change how this is done this just doesn't make sense to me and I'm so there I am at 18 knowing nothing about programming and uh, and uh, for whatever reason that 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 desire to have influence was was already there I mean it seems incredibly arrogant to me now and uh, of course, since then I've gotten even older, but um, the, somehow that, uh, like when things don't make sense to me, um, I just want to uh, to uh, do something about it. 
Yeah, so so let's talk about some of the practices that you know that you remember from that time that didn't seem right to you, and and what were some of the early ideas you had about how it could, how things could be better. Well, I had the good fortune um, coming out of school, working in Tektronics Labs, where we had early versions of Smalltalk running, and. Uh, in comparison to the to my experiences with uh, uh, in college with compiled languages and long uh, feedback loops, uh, we kind of had a a contest to see how small the increments uh, could be and how quickly we could get feedback on them. And uh, and. We developed uh, this is working with Ward Cunningham was my mentor at that time. Um, we developed this kind of um, in World War II, it was called the island hopping strategy, where if somebody had a s strong point, you wouldn't land there, you'd go to the next island where nobody was um, and just bypass big problems. We would do the same thing in, in programming. We'd have some big idea of what we wanted the programming experience to be like. And then if it turned out that that was really difficult, we'd just go around it and do, do something else. But all the time we were trying, you know, can we get feedback in seconds instead of minutes, uh, even for larger projects? And so I think that, that habit started then. I certainly didn't have it before then, but that, that habit of shortening feedback loops as an engineering activity. As an engineer, you're not just making the program, you're making the making of the program. You're, you're figuring out, okay, you know, what tools do I need to build? How can I get the feedback loops shorter? That's an engineering activity too, but it's not one that's ever covered in any kind of, uh, in, in, in any engineering curriculum that I've seen. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately. Yeah, because you, you come out and, and it, it's not how fast you can get a, an assignment done. It's figuring out why the assignment's wrong and which half of it you should do and ship now. And like it's just the environment's completely the opposite. It's not cheating anymore. It's collaboration and you get graded <laughs> up for it instead of flunking. And yeah, so I, I had to go through a lot of those, those changes. But I had a, a fantastic environment at Tech Labs, a bunch of really smart people and tons of MIPS. Um, that's millions of instructions per second to you youngsters. Uh, and uh, and you mean you mean like what everybody carries on their iPhone now? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't resist. Many megabytes, which is the one that's smaller than a gigabyte, um, and, uh, and and millions of pixels, which is still not all that different. That's the one. That's one that's always struck me. It's like I've got a thousand times more memory and a thousand times more cycle and four times as many pixels. Yeah, it's, it's that whole physics thing. So annoying. <laughs> bus, bus, bus. <laughs> so kind of like a true software guy. I, I'm so with you. Okay, so... so uh, yeah, that's, that's how I got started in, in, in being unconventional, I guess. So I think a lot of people would have that experience and like really be satisfied that they found a new, you know, a better kind of way to, like, to be a developer as an individual. But you felt the need to go further than that and actually start to codify some of those things and give it a name and evangelize it to other people. Like, how did that, how and why did that occur to you? And for those that don't know extreme programming, can you kind of just give a little bit of that history too? Sure. Um, uh, about for uh, probably the first 10 years that I programmed, I was in pursuit of, of uh, virtuosity uh, as a programmer. I wanted to just do a better job of programming because after all my projects will be more successful if I'm a better programmer. And, and it turns out that you can be a bad enough programmer to sync a project, but you cannot be a good enough programmer to make a project successful. So I quickly ran out of, of uh, gas on projects being more successful so I was forced to take a bigger, broader view of, of the context in which programming happens. And so I started paying attention to things that worked and things that didn't seem to make a difference or that actively harmed development. And um, I've always had the habit of being a contrarian and, you know, the, 
if anybody states, you know, X is absolutely true, I always think, what would be, what are the implications of not X? Like, just as a reflex, I always think that. So if somebody says, oh, you need comprehensive documentation for software development, I think, well, what if you didn't have any documentation at all? Would that really be a disaster? And I looked around and projects and it wasn't a disaster. So I thought, well, okay, what did, you know, maybe, maybe a commitment to communication is good enough. And the actual mm -hmm. form of the communication is something that we could, we could be a little bit flexible on. So um, as I, as I, uh, went from let me be a better and better programmer to let me look at the context in which programming happens. Um, I, I just collected this catalog of things that worked and things that mattered. And so when the time came when the uh, CIO of a major corporation asked me to run a project, and uh, and I told her that I didn't run projects and she explained that she was the CIO of a major American corporation. And yes, you're running the project. Um, then I named my price and she said yes. And I said, oh, crap. <laughs> now um, you have to do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just figured I didn't have anything to lose. It was a failing project. I couldn't hurt it. You know, the patient's already almost dead. So why don't I just take everything that I've seen that works well and and crank it up as as just as intensely as possible and nothing else even though the 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 nothing else included a whole bunch of things that every software engineering book would tell you you absolutely had to do like have a QA department or right. have comprehensive documentation or get your design right before you start coding and on and on and on and on so I just thought well sure the exponentially increasing cost of change Right. Yeah, that's just obviously true, except sometimes it's not. So how about if we make it so it's not uh -huh. and then act on that assumption? It's one of the things I've, I've first really liked about extreme programming and have, have really tried to do many times in my career. Is people assume that the, the context and the tools and the infrastructure and the systems around you are immutable. And it's like, well, what's the best technique I can use given those systems? And you know what you just said really reminds me that the, the, those things are a choice. Like the cost of change, the cost of delay, um, the speed of feedback, the underlying cycle time of the tools that we use, we can make it like we, those are not given to us by God. We can make a choice about them. And so when we want to spend a dollar, sure, we can, of course, always spend the dollar in making more features the old way. Or we could spend that same dollar improving the yield we're going to get in our future development. Then sometimes that creates really interesting possibilities. Right. And I think that's just it's just a habit of of uh, of thinking. Do do you accept assumptions or do you challenge assumptions? And it, it's it's not a horrible thing to accept assumptions, but it put, uh, puts a big cap on what you can achieve. So, given that you are such a contrarian, I, I was just kind of skipping ahead, but I got to ask now that that extreme programming has been you know kind of subsumed into the word agile development, you know, for better or for worse. And in a lot of ways, in so many parts of the world now, agile development is now considered itself an orthodoxy that's always right. How does it feel having practices that you pioneered like out of a spirit of contrariness, like now having their own kind of religion around them and being, and being uh, perceived as a universal best practice? Uh, uh, so I'm trying not to edit my answer too much. So I'm a little sad uh, because like everything has a context and there's times yeah. when I don't write tests and there's times when I don't refactor and there's times when I don't pair program. Um, and yeah, like the, every, all of those things have a context. So anybody settling for dogmatism is selling themselves short. And I, I wish, I wish better for my brothers and sister programmers. Mm -hmm. than, than to mm -hmm. stop thinking just when thinking could really have a lot of leverage. So that, that's part of it. Another part of it is just kind of a rueful acceptance that that's human nature and it's going to yeah. happen and there's absolutely nothing I can do. Mm, that's not true. Uh, my responsibility in the situation is limited. I need to explain the things that I explain to the best of my ability. And mm -hmm. that's where my responsibility stops. If somebody takes yeah. that and uses it as a club to hit somebody else, like 
just, you know, just because I wrote the book and the book is used to hit someone like, should I have not written the book? No, absolutely not. But, but being, it, it helps me to be clear about the boundaries. Like where do my, where's my responsibility go to now? If I, if I didn't explain something clearly and, and then that's, you know, made it too easy to misinterpret it. And then, then that's used in a way, then I do bear some of the responsibility for that. Mm -hmm. But if I explain something to really, and I can't think of a better way to explain it at the time I explained it, that's, I'm satisfied with that. Mm -hmm. I think that's fair. Um, I mean, the same thing happens to you, right? All the time. I ask these questions out of pure self-interest because yes, I, uh, people, people ask me, how come lean startup is such a religion? And why are your followers so dogmatic? And I have to be like, hey, I, you know, I don't, I don't know who you're talking to, but I'd be happy to call them and explain that you, it's not a religion because you can't be excommunicated. That's not how it works. Plus, if we, if we discover something new while we're practicing these approaches, then my point of view is the new discovery is immediately part of what we teach. Right. So what we know today, I hope, is just the tip of the iceberg because we are a science community. And so... Even if something was the best we could do a few years ago, uh, if we haven't learned anything in the intervening years, then what, like, what a shame. Right. There's something definitely wrong with that picture. Yeah. So if we ossify and, and freeze it, then that's terrible. I'd be very disappointed. Yeah, sure. And, and the irony is that talking to you about startup situations, like uh, we've had conversations about this, about the, like this, about things that I was, I was starting up. And I find you to be really flexible. It's as if you're reinventing lean startups from first principles every time. You never just give me a cookie cutter. It's, you know, it's never like, oh, you should do an A-B test. It's like, well, this principle pushes this way and this principle pushes that way. And then da, 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 and here's a story. <laughs> and so maybe something like this might be helpful. And, and it's, it's as if you created something just for me in that moment. And, that's my dis like I feel that same way when I program at my best. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not, you know, I have the values and the principles in my mind, and I'm reinventing the practices from scratch. Now you get faster and faster at that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. You've gone down those alleys before, so you kind of know what the signposts to look for are. First of all, I take that as a really as high praise, a, a really uh, huge compliment. So thank you. I do think like thinking about the work that we do from first principles. Uh, really is the right way to think about it. Like as you said, there is no universally applicable tool. There's only tools that make sense in a certain context. And so if you can't, you know, it's like memorizing formulas in a math class. If you fundamentally can't rederive from your first principles where those formulas came from, you're going to run, like they're useful still as heuristics and every once in a while they'll come in handy, but you're more likely to cut yourself with the tool than actually make progress with it because you don't really understand how it works or where it comes from. So, so we got a question from the audience, which is uh, just we were talking about the pitfalls of agile development, but they wanted to know, well, so what are they? Uh, so, you know, I, I sort of my take, but I'll maybe let you go first and say what are some of the contexts you've seen where, uh, where it can be challenging? Uh, so I have a simple answer to this one, which is a values mismatch. So if, mm -hmm. if you take extreme programming, which is founded on communication, simplicity, feedback, courage, and respect, if you're in an organization whose actual values, not the expressed ones, not the ones that are written on the back of the uh, <laughs> of the business card or the ones you know on the banner, but if in you the look posters, at how yeah. people behave, and you say, "Hmm, what are the actual values here?" If those values are contradictory to the values underlying extreme programming, you're just going to be an annoyance. There's just no like you should you should not even do this like keep doing things the way that you're doing or work to change the values because you'll be seen you know you're you're going to be the one person who says oh well I've spent 10% of the budget and I know that that we're going to be late by a factor of 2 and everybody else is busy pretending that they're going to hit the date well yeah. who's the problem around the table at that point definitely the person who you know, isn't enough of a team player to say blah, 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 right? But why are you being so negative? If you weren't so negative, maybe we would hit the date. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I've been that guy. And, oh, yeah, and, really, and the really same is true. You know, there, there are organizations that actively discourage feedback. There are organizations that reward cowardice. There are organizations that reward disrespect. And if you're in one of those organizations and you're trying to do something that whose absolute foundations is the opposite of that, it's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, because the questioner asked about agile development, I'll say one thing I've noticed, and I appreciate Kent being specific in his answer. And I think for those who only know agile through the broad definition, I encourage you, especially if you're in software, to, to study extreme programming specifically rather than agile in general. Because quite a few of what are called agile approaches really don't have feedback in as a value. So I would say that the context, certainly this is where I ran afoul with Agile before I had really studied it, which is that when you're in a situation of high uncertainty, um, you know, a lot of Agile approaches still fundamentally believe that you have a product owner or, a, or an in-house customer who will give you an authoritative answer as to what needs to be built. Uh, and in a lot of startup situations, there is no authoritative answer as to what needs to be built because nobody knows. And so the poor product owner is sitting there prioritizing stories as best they can. But I always ask the question to Agile teams that I meet, how do you know that this product owner is prioritizing correctly? Or more importantly, how does she know prioritizing correctly? And what kind of feedback is she getting about whether that prioritization decision that was made in the past is correct today? In most cases, the answer is, is no feedback at all, and they're just, we're just acting on faith. So that, I think, is a tremendous weakness if you try to just apply that general approach without really an understanding of the context of the level of uncertainty that you're in. Yep. Um, so, it, so it, it, go, go ahead. Yeah, please. No. I was just going to say that you can always generate more feedback. You, you can generate too much feedback, but that's a really good kind of problem to have. So having that second loop of learning, which is how can we learn faster, not just what have we learned, but how can we continue learning faster, I think that's – for me, that's an engineering task, or it's you know partly. As an engineer, if you're not doing that, you're not doing your job. Uh, a lot of people are asking us in the question just if you want to make a comment on Eric Evans's concept of domain-driven design, good or bad, but maybe just well, more open to comment. Sure, I've known Eric Evans for for a long time, and I think he's a, a, a both smart and wise person. Uh, I think. Anything that he writes is worth reading and thinking about. Um, this is maybe a, another example. You know, you have your orthodoxy, I have mine, or, or you have your orthodox followers, and I have my orthodox followers. And I think Eric Evans has his orthodox followers, for whom domain-driven design is really a, a comforting retreat to uh, to designing first and then implementing later which is a longer feedback loop, like in principle, it's just the wrong direction, but it's human nature to go back to things that are comfortable. So I think I, I try and separate in my mind. I, I don't think that's what Eric wrote, and I don't think it's what he meant, uh, but I separate in my mind the his ideas and the ideas as practiced by the community. Totally. So, so uh, well, I'll stop asking biographical questions in a second, but I got to know, but when we first met, you know, my image of you was basically living like uh, in a monastery in rural Oregon, you know, on a farm, like, like the mysterious coding monk. And then next thing I know, you're working. So what's that been like to make that transition into Facebook? And can you talk a little bit about what you're doing there? Sure. Um, yeah, I had uh, two kids in college at one time. Uh, and uh, I needed a little bit more stability in my life. Um, also, the something about being a consultant is that you're never really part of anything. Yeah, you're not part of the group, and and it's so it's the saddest thing in the world to have a really successful engagement as a consultant and be getting on the plane and know that you're just you're going to lose touch with those people, but they're going to be rocking it together for you know, months and years, and you don't get to, to be part of that. And that got old for me also. So part of it was just a wanting more of a feeling of belonging. And part of it was, um, uh, the, the, just needing more stability in my life. A and then, uh, background 
task that I've been working on probably for 10 or 12 years now is trying to understand software design. Um, I think there was wisdom that the ancients had that uh, uh, we we've collectively lost and needs to be uh, regained where the ancients are uh, are people like Larry Constantine and Ed Jordan. Sorry, guys, but. Um, and and so going to Facebook was an opportunity It's a laboratory. It's it's really smart people working on unprecedented problems at ridiculous speed. And um, so I get to see this this hothouse of software design. I get to see generations of technology that last six months instead of lasting for six years. And so I can see many more cycles through the loop of how software evolves, how innovation disperses in a community and so on. So that part was a big draw for me and has played out. Then once I arrived, I was absolutely addicted to shipping software that a billion people use. That's just unspeakably cool to do that on a daily basis. Uh, I know you're going to talk about this some at the conference, but I just uh, any like what are some of the aha moments? Anything you want to share? Things that you you feel like you've really learned from being in that environment? It sounds amazing. Well, I had to discard my assumptions going in. Uh, I it was this back to first principles. There's a Facebook way of doing things, and uh, the degree to which I said, "Oh well, here's how I do things. Let me apply it in the Facebook context." I just got it was, it was tons of friction for me and for other people. Reviewers would look at it and say, "Why are you doing this?" Oh well, because that's you know I'm the Kent Beck, and this is how the Kent Beck does these things, and you can just call me the. But uh, so I had to like it took me uh, several weeks to just like, OK, no, no, I am fresh out of school. I don't know anything about programming. I'm in a program here like I see the people around me programming and try and get good at that and then add in the things that I think I already know. That was mm -hmm. a shock. That was really hard. Um, and uh, but. In the end, it's a it's a fantastic education. I think I'm a much more well-rounded programmer now than I was three years ago when I joined. Um, I prototype faster. I'm more aggressive in a lot of ways than I had ever been before, and I can still make steady progress and have clean code and whatever. But but uh, other aspects of my engineering have gotten a lot better in the meantime. That's very cool. Man, I wish everybody who took a new job, a software job or otherwise, would approach it that way. You know, learn, it's, learn how things are now and then learn how they can be improved versus coming It's in just so hard. You, you come in, you know, you're the agile guru and you're going into some place and they have a six-month deployment schedule. And the first thing you want to do is chop it into one-month chunks. And you should do at least one and probably two of those six-month cycles before you open your yap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. you might you might be surprised. You might learn something. Yeah, absolutely. I think it speaks very well of you. Um, okay, so so I feel like I've been playing Inquisitor too long here. Uh, so, what do you want to talk about? Well, I'm curious about this balance, and I think you and I are maybe outliers on this. I I, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. That we're both makers. We like. Like the satisfaction of creating a piece of software or a physical thing or a good dinner or whatever it is, like actually making something is really attractive and, and, and brings us both satisfaction. And yet we both seem to measure ourselves on influence instead of being able to point to I made that and that and that. I know. Where, where, does, where does that come from for you? Um, yeah, it's it's really it's very frustrating. I mean, I think that uh, I would have been very happy. I thought I would be really happy when I was younger. I was convinced that programming was the most fun thing I would ever do, and I'd be very happy to program increasingly large systems myself. Um, and I think the I, I think basically what happened was uh, I kept doing that and not having the kind of impact that I wanted to have, because like in my fantasy, I could produce a massive program that's used by billions of people and is in, has enormous complexity and is incredibly innovative by myself. 
just, you know, by, with my bare hands. But the truth of any program is, uh, you know, it requires teams and customers. And it's like this complicated ecosystem. So, like, it's every time I've actually tried to do that, like, the person who's considered the founder or the person who, like, created a complicated system, you know, it doesn't matter if it's Linux or Facebook or, you know, or anything. Like, somebody had to plant that initial seed, and that's very satisfying. But in order for us to have remembered it and to care about the fact that they are the founder of that thing, they had to do an incredible amount of management of people to get them to grow that seed into something that is significant. And what's frustrating to me, it was then and it still is, as soon as I became a manager of people and a team leader and an architect and really like thinking out how to do that stuff, I, got, I was doing human systems engineering and not like I was no longer making things with my bare hand bare hands. And so like, I've always had that frustration that that's both very frustrating, but also of course, very satisfying, very proud of the things that the teams that I work with, um, uh, built. And I think that, that for me anyway, the transition from being a team leader to whatever it is that I do now, super clear to me, but like, uh, to try and like cultivate this community and, and share a set of ideas on a wider scale, that was actually a much easier transition than going from an individual contributor to a team leader. Because to me, it's like as soon as I was not making things myself with my bare hands, it's all about, okay, well, then what activities will give me the greatest influence to have the impact I want to see in the world? And once you start asking that question, it's very, I don't know, for me anyway, it's very easy to get away from, from making things and much more into helping other people make things. But I do miss the, the kind of hands-dirty implementation too. So I don't know if you feel that way too. Well, it's, I'm it's about – yeah, it is hard. It's like it's a change in value system, a change in how you view yourself. Yeah. I'm, I'm the person who makes things and I'm the person who helps other people make things. So I shifted when extreme programming broke, you know, about 99. I shifted to full metal guru status for about for about 10 years. I made that up just for you just now. You're welcome. Everyone should so, use that from now on. That's an awesome phrase. <laughs> so I was really, you know, write the book, fly around, give the speeches, and and I burned out on that pretty hard. And but I I didn't I didn't know what to do. And about six years ago, maybe I had a really programming project. Somebody just said, "Go go program." this thing and I got into it in three days you know I did amazing stuff and uh, you know used all my knowledge and whatever and it felt so good that I've where I am now is that I balance my time between the two so I have really specific projects that I program on test code refactor you know deploy look at data just the whole really that thing but Probably half of my day is spent um, coaching, and uh, while I would like to have impact across all of Facebook engineering, I want to be realistic, so I do my coaching. Most of, of my coaching is really one-on-one. -on -one. I give tech talks, and uh, everyone's very active on, on internal Facebook groups and conversations about stuff, but, but really half of my day is spent pair programming with young programmers. And, and that fortunately, should be on the, that should be on the Facebook perks page for why you should want to go work there as a young programmer. <laughs> you should go through the pro the process before you say that. <laughs> it certainly sounds some, good. Some sometimes I'm some days I'm nicer than others. Let me just put it that way. And fortunately, yeah, for, fortunately, uh, young engineers haven't invented new ways of wasting time. So it's it's. It takes me a little while sometimes to start doing the pattern match, but then I can say, "Oh, yeah, when I'm like this, here's what I do." Yeah, you know, maybe you want to try and this Here's out. the here's the pieces of paper by my desk, so I don't forget things and I stay focused and blah 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 blah. blah. And let's try this and let's take this. It's you know, in in some ways, it's it's really just the same same kind of wasting time mistakes that I make. So I get this combination of, of uh, influence and really making time. And boy, I come out at two or three hours of just head down programming and I feel fantastic. So yeah, I'm happy to have found a balance between the two. Oh, that's really cool.
Um, I, one of the funny things you'll appreciate this, you know, in the last year especially, my work has been increasingly with industrial companies far away from software. So I've had a chance now to work on, you know, uh, combined cycle power plants and healthcare devices and just like really nutty stuff, cars and, and hardcore physical devices, you know, very different material science type technologies from software. So much so that I was working with uh, a company, that, an industrial company, and they, they had me talk to one of their software teams. And they were like, what does this guy know about software? And all he knows is all, it's all industrial. Sure, they were like, obviously Lean Startup will work for my industrial products, but how could it work in our really difficult ERP implementation? I swear to God. Uh, and it was really fun to get back. It was so I realized it's been a while since I actually sat down with like a real hardcore, like, you know, I do a lot of consumer internet type startups and that stuff. All, always that people come to my door all the time. But like sitting down with a big old school Oracle, you know, ERP implementation, uh, you know, accounting, payroll, that kind of stuff, and being like, oh, right. Uh, I, like, I, like, I was weird to have some domain expertise to come in and talk to them about it, and they were still doing it old waterfall style. So it was really interesting to, like, to come in and say, okay, you know, if your company's going through a lean startup transformation, and that's happening on the product and new product development side, what's your excuse on the IT side to stay mired in that old way? Like, don't you want to keep up with what the rest of it was just funny to see IT as a lagging function, like having to like be taught about the importance of innovation when usually it's the other way around. Yeah. But yeah, when someone told me, what do I know about software? I was really happy. That was a great day. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, sit down, son. <laughs> are you, are you I, getting old enough to call people son yet? No, I, I, I look even younger than I am. So I go into these industrial companies are like, why is this kid lecturing us on whatever? I have to get uh, over it every time. But uh, I, 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 I got to say, it, it, I, I always, it already always pissed me off when some old guy would say, son, or I've been doing that since before you were born. Yeah. It is immensely satisfying to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I look forward to it someday. Mm. Uh, uh, all right, we're oh. getting a lot of cuts. But we like a lot more audience questions, but what else, what else, I, if you have other stuff you want to talk about before we get to them, I think I thought it was a great question. So go nuts. No, I'm just, uh, it, I think it's uh, finding that balance. Like if everybody was just influencing everybody, nothing would no, no one would ever do anything. Oh, I totally agree. And, and if everybody was just doing and doing and doing and not reflecting on it and talking about some things work better than others then things would never get done any better. And right. so there's clearly some balance to be to be struck there. And uh, some some days I I think of it as a, a character defect that, that I want to measure myself. I want to be able to look around and say, you know, you see that rock star, I trained him. You know, you see that guy really yeah. crushing it. You know, th this woman over here, I, I trained her and then she went someplace else and now she's still crushing it. Like... The, the, mm -hmm. I find great satisfaction in that, and I, like, but part of me wants to just go program some more. Well, you so. can, then you could just sit in the cave and people would leave you alone. That's my I favorite part exactly. of it. Just me and the goats. All right, we got we got a bunch of questions about healthcare.gov. How would you have managed it differently? And uh, not to not to want to step in a political uh, controversy, but. You must have some. You must have had some thoughts about it reading in the paper. It must be driving you crazy. Sure, sure. And when they announced that it was six hundred million dollars down the drain, I just like that's a little bit of money. You know, even if it's only two of my dollars, it's still a little bit of money. Yeah. Um. So I I have my answer. I'm really interested in yours. So I'll answer, but then you have to answer. Okay, I'll answer too. I promise. So so. Uh, this is not at all a technical problem because it's not a difficult technical issue. I have worked in life insurance. One, one, I've been advising a, a life insurance software company for 15 years. So I know a little bit about the domain, and it is unbelievably complicated. No question about that. That said, it's not that unbelievably complicated. There's just always exceptions to everything. And so it's none of the coding is ever going to be straightforward. But it seems to me like step one was sitting down with the Republican leadership and the Democratic leadership in the Congress and saying, 
Is getting good health care to the American people more important than making political political hay? <laughs> if the answer to that is no, then the game's over. We're not going to do it. I mean, I wouldn't. There, there's if that's true. Wow. Then then there's just no no way of of making any progress. Now, I would want to make the answers as as clear and accountable and public as possible because if somebody wants to be narrowly reelected and doesn't actually care about the healthcare Americans get that that's that's information that a voter should know yeah for sure but but without that alignment i mean i, I was reading the, the history of healthcare.gov and it's all a, well and then they wanted to do this but the republicans would have said that this was happening blah 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 yeah and it's like well if if this isn't a bipartisan project both either side could have spoiled it mm-hmm. and so until it's a bipartisan project you just you don't do it and you let everybody know who's uh, who's gumming up the works hmm. i i don't like i don't know any if you take as a given the political situation and the polarization and the the intense balkanization of pol- politics where somebody wants to get reelected so badly, but their electorate is not going to forgive any step outside of the uh, of the lines of the whatever the dogmatism like you can't govern. Yeah, you can't govern the rest of the com- country, much less a. Uh, uh, difficult challenging it project so i think that's that would be my step one yeah okay that's a fascinating answer because of course you know i mean i i'm a political junkie and so i think about politics all the time but i also have a separate part of my brain that thinks about you know it procurement and how you know and how you build a project like this and so you're crowd you're crossing the wires for me right even as we speak you know to me the word bipartisan ought to mean that you have a solution that takes advantage of the ideas of both sides or that is, has, has popularity among the voters of both parties. If you define it only as you're able to get votes in Congress from both parties for something, you create this incredible and irresistible incentive to simply vote no, to deny whoever's in the executive the opportunity to have a bipartisan victory. Right. And I think, that was, I think that's the root of this political error. I mean, Obamacare is as conservative a health care reform as you're going to have uh, you know, anyone proposed in this country. And there was an opportunity, I think, for both parties to say, hey, let's take co-ownership of this. But a decision was made, you know, not to do that. And I think you're absolutely right that that created a very difficult environment to get things done in. But I guess I disagree that it made it impossible. And I'll, I'll point to just one uh, counterexample, because to me, the great irony of healthcare.gov is that the current healthcare.gov that people are complaining about is actually the second version of healthcare.gov that was built. The first one was built right after the uh, Obamacare law was passed. This is back in the time when Todd Park, who's now the U.S. CTO, was the CTO of the health department. And there was a provision in the law that said they were, you have to create a healthcare.gov website. And you couldn't sign up for insurance in those days. It simply gave you information about the insurance options in your, uh, in your jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. But it was still pretty complicated. It still required a lot of um, cooperation from the insurance company. Like, there was a lot to it. And they did it exactly opposite of this current healthcare.gov in the three dimensions I think of as key. They, gave, they put a small team on it, cross-functional small team. I think there was no more than 10 people. They gave them 90 days to deliver, and I think their total budget was, it was so small as to be close enough to zero, like a million bucks, classic minimum viable product. Mm-hmm. They did it all open source. So from an ethos point of view, uh, it was the opposite. And then from an infrastructure point of view, it was all, you know, cloud and, and modern like you'd expect. Uh, and then they were able from that point to do the build, measure, learn thing and to iterate and get feedback from insurance companies and from the public. And, and so they did that. Web, like they turned that from a tiny little seed into a very useful, quite complicated project by gradually increasing its complexity in a highly polarizing political environment where everybody wanted Obamacare to fail. So what um, to, to me was deeply frustrating. Thanks to the president's creation of the post of the CTO and the CIO, he has really great people from Silicon Valley, from our communities, that could have been instrumental in creating this website. And those people were bypassed because of the IT procurement process in federal government, which is a nightmare. So, um, 
you know, I have a diagram in the Lean Startup in the book that, that goes like this, accountability, process, culture, people, in that order. If something's going wrong, start with how are people held accountable, who pays money. So in the government, this is a procurement problem. Then it's a process problem. They did it waterfall instead of agile. That was pretty dumb. It's a culture problem. They use a proprietary ethos instead of an open source ethos. And fundamentally, it's a people problem. They had the wrong people working on it. So it's like four interlocking, complicated problems. But, but I feel like they could have done it differently, even, even facing all the hostility that they face, uh, given they had basically an unlimited budget, you know, strong, a strong desire from the executive branch to see this work, and the right talented people around to advise them that they had just... Oh, if they had just done it that other way, I think it could have been a lot more effective. Or even continued. It would be interesting to to figure out that moment when when the the uh, adults took over. Yeah. Okay. Perfectly you guys working built- thing, but it's too simple. Thank yeah, you very no. much for getting into this part. But now the adults will take over. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I wish that would never never happen ever. Oh uh, yeah. Oh, so frustrating. Well, that was a that was a much more hopeful answer than mine. So thank you for that. I, well, I don't get accused of that too often, so I appreciate. I it. feel better. Yeah. Okay. Good. And actually, you know, and to be fair, because uh, I know we have some folks who who are interested in lean startup in the public sector. Uh, there's some work that's being done at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB. That's a brand new agency that was started up in, during the Obama administration, and instead of going outsource CGI, you know, vendors. They have built all their technology expertise in-house, and they're doing a lot of really cool lean startup stuff. They have a much, much better software development process, and they're doing it in a highly polarized environment. So anyone who's interested, look, look them up. They're, I think, going to be a future very positive case study of how this can be done properly, assuming mm-hmm. that healthcare.gov doesn't take the whole administration down. Mm-hmm. Anyway, enough politics. We're supposed Thank to be you. talking about product development or something. I don't even know. But, uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and how to have influence. Yeah, and how to have influence. That's right. Well, so um, we've got a question here about thing and coaching teams. So the person says, how about the coaching aspects? Um, how do you create those engagement loops, motivation, action, feedback in teams? And what are your experiences as a coach? So I, I'd say uh, I take a subtractive approach. I think that people by nature are interested and engaged and energized and that there's lots of ways to screw that up. So, so if, uh, if I'm talking to a team and they're not engaged and they're not energized and they, they don't have, uh, you know, they're not bringing their full selves to, the, to their work, something's preventing that and getting rid of what's preventing that is like thing one. So uh, it's not a, well, you come in and you print the t-shirts and you, you know, add this and add that and come up with the full sized, you know, uh, fluffy animal mascot suit. And like, uh, I think that's, that's entirely backwards. Not that I have anything against full sized fluffy animal mascot suits, but there's a time and a place for it, and and when things aren't going well, it's not the time to introduce it. Uh-huh. Uh, I remember one of the uh, was a, uh, a turning moment. I don't have quite the right word for it. I, I was giving a talk, a large high tech company, and I tend to get pretty personal in my talks and, and talk about my own weaknesses and struggles. And, and sometimes that gives people permission to, to respond in kind. And this guy in a room of 400 engineers, this guy raises his hand and says, why do I have to turn off so many parts of myself in order to work here? Wow. And just like, I just, you know, I, I choke up just thinking about it. It was a really hard question. Like, <sighs> How do you answer a question like that? But if that's how he feels, like, number one, why are you sticking around? Get out of but, there. But, but let's say that you don't have options and, you know, this is the only game in town and you want to keep working there for whatever reason. Like, there's something about that environment. He wants to bring his whole self. He wants to be creative and energized and he wants to use his, his – uh, uh, emotional energy for good things and something's blocking that 
So how do we get rid of that? So the, the, I, for me, that's the number one thing is just let's let's find out is it is it programmers aren't in touch with the customers. They don't have a sense that what they do matters. Let's yeah. get them on the line with the you know as a with a customer service rep or what's let's sit them down in a in a coffee shop and have them watch people use the software that they developed yesterday um is uh, is somebody going to yell at them for something that's not their fault well let's figure out where that's coming from and why is the person doing the yelling so afraid that they would act in such a such mm-hmm. a, a counterproductive manner like Let's peel away the layers, get it back down to basics. And and at the heart, a healthy project is people bringing all of themselves to a really short feedback loop, solving problems that really matter. So whatever part of that's not present, let's let's take stuff away until that's what we have left. Mm-hmm. Goes back to that first principles thing we were talking about. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and sometimes that will look like practices. And sometimes it'll be something that's never happened before and will never happen again. I, I like that. That's my approach in a situation. Mm-hmm. Mm, totally. I get, I get called in, you know, now that I'm considered an innovation expert, you know, whatever that means, uh, I get called in now to, to meet these big companies. And a very common question I get is like, where do I find more entrepreneurial people? And I think what they have in mind is like, you know, who do I fire? And how do I go hire some of those fancy, you know, Mark Zuckerberg type kids to, to work for me? And in every company where I've actually had a chance to meet the people that work there, I'm like, you have tons of entrepreneurs who work for you, but they're not allowed to bring that part of their creativity and their self to work. You prohibit it through your own actions. And so if you want to fix the problem, look in the mirror. Now you're looking at the problem. Let's talk about how you as a senior leader can change your behavior to make. And of course, that's usually the last conversation we ever have. Because they're like, why am I hiring this? Exactly. I don't want to hear that. About how great I am. Uh, so, so I actually, I the companies that have been willing to to go down that journey and really look at their own behavior and systems and incentives and rewards. And again, that same pyramid, right? What do we do from an accountability people accountability um, approach? Like, how do we hold teams accountable uh, for for results, right? If we hold them accountable to vanity metrics and trailing indicators and ROI, then that's going to cause a lot of dysfunction and bad behavior. Like, what do we do at a process layer? You know, what what tools do we expect them to use? Like, are we prepared to let them experiment and use fast feedback, or do we expect them to always have all the right answers up front and figure things out in advance? You know, the culture we have today is an artifact of the process decisions we made in the past. So. If we have a bad culture, we got to think, okay, well, what, are the, what are the ways we want to change that culture? And then what are the process interventions we can make to make those new cultural behaviors the default rather than the exception? And then once you've been through that whole thing, you say, okay, now we have a culture that can attract and retain really good people. If there's someone who's really not on board with that transformation, like maybe they're not the right person, but that's you know, quite rare in my experience. It's, hard, it's like a lot harder than like just putting up posters that say everybody move past and break things. It's if like yeah. that... Posters. Yeah, the, the the posters are a consequence, not a cause. Oh, yeah, exactly. I, I did hear uh, so at Facebook we have a lot of posters, and uh, and, and I heard uh, uh, we had a, a leadership uh, consultant come in and talk to us, and he made a point that I thought was just brilliant, which is if you took the po- posters from any successful tech company and move them to a different successful tech company, it would just look stupid. You know, if you take a move fast and break things and you hang it up in the lobby at Apple, like somebody's going to tear it down within seconds. It would laugh at your face. Because it just doesn't make any sense in that context. So we don't have the way. We have a way. And it works works well. So one of the things that uh, that I was reminded of as you were talking about is uh, inside of Facebook, people are judged on impact, not effort. And this is really uncomfortable. So my first uh, uh, my first review was a below average review, like don't get two of these in a row kind of review. And I thought. Well, that feels really bad. I don't want to feel like that. And Sheryl Sandberg stood up in the the company-wide Q&A the next Friday, said, well, some people got negative reviews, and they don't like it. And that doesn't mean that this policy of measuring impact is wrong. Uh, 
she used a specific example, but think of any large tech company that used to be great and, and now is in the dumps. I'll bet people there got fantastic five-star reviews the entire way down into the crater. Yep. So if if you're not having impact, now you can choose whether you do low risk, low reward, you know, certain to have a small amount of impact, or whether you do something that's high risk of having a big impact, but then you're going to have to live through the lean times when you don't. That's a personal choice, but uh, that was definitely something that it took me a while to like. I don't get bad reviews. Oh right? yeah. So, oh, God. so that was a real wake up call, and now, now I kind of like it because I can kind of tune the knobs. To how much impact do do I want to be certain of having versus you know do I want it? So some of my time is just on crazy projects that are very unlikely to succeed, but if they are successful like you know i i I go up another notch and and have a really good time so yeah i i think for those who are listening in that that very simple statement that measure people on impact not effort uh is huge and it's it's scary because i think people have a feeling that being rewarded for effort is somehow low risk it's like gives them some career stability it's like i followed the check checks in the checklist therefore i did a good job therefore and, and I know I appreciate you being circumspect and not want to name names, but when I'm working with companies, I'm very happy to name names. I'm like, oh, I see, got it. You're on the Nokia plan. That seems really <laughs> to me. No, oh, the BlackBerry plan. I know that plan really well. The Kodak plan. So good luck with that. And, uh, you know, when you're out of work because you implemented the Kodak plan, are you going to sit there and be like, well, that was low risk? You know, is that safe and high stability and you know, got me promoted? I don't think so. That we don't live in a world like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's cool. I feel like people actually resonate with that when you say, wait, is there like, – because I just think most people just haven't thought that there's any other way. They just right. – I was told, follow the checklist and that's how you get promoted and whatever. And to say, no, actually, there's a better way and it's a fundamental waste of human energy and talent to have people working on things that nobody wants and that have no impact. Like that's actually like – morally wrong to have a system that does that uh you know could we expand our horizons to see that there's a different way i find that actually very motivating for people yeah yeah and and, and uh, it certainly energized me and and gave my creativity boost even though i i found the transition difficult but to to bring it back around i think that there are people who are looking for that safe way whether it's the lean startup or extreme programming or Scrum, and they would like to have the steps. But there's good ideas in, in all of those. But um, uh, in the end, it's it's what you actually accomplish with them that's that's going to make a difference for you, for your company, for society as a whole. You know, a, a, as a way of of honoring the gifts that you were given. So, uh, looks like we're uh, we're about out of time unfortunately We're running out okay but before before we end i want to ask you one last thing sure uh, i had to actually had to look it up because i remember when you came and spoke to us what was it three or four years ago now at the at the original startup lessons learned conference you uh you had uh, written what i thought was going to be like major news and people were going to be like the world was going to be rocked and then i feel like it didn't get nearly as much attention as it deserved a uh, an evolution of the agile manifesto and i just want to read back to you what you wrote then to see if now that you've had a chance to Think about it now. You've been at Facebook. Like, how does this still strike you uh, compared to how it was a couple years ago? Did it, did it seem right? And am I right that people should be paying more attention to this? And so I'm just going to read this to you. It says, team vision and discipline over individuals and interactions, and then in parentheses, or processes and tools. Amen to that. Validated learning over working software or comprehensive documentation. Customer discovery over customer collaboration or contract negotiation and initiating change over responding to change, which, thank God, is better than following a plan. So you wrote that, it looks like, at least three years ago now. How's it feeling now? I, I don't think, I would like to have done a better job of applying all those things. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't see anything wrong with the direction, but I don't feel like I've lived up to them. But, uh, but that's certainly my, my goal. I think we can all agree with that sentiment. And that sounds like what's going to be, have to be a whole other webcast sometime to talk about all the ways in which we've all fallen short and what we can do about it. But uh, 
I think this is, we're going to have to call it, we told people this would be about an hour and that's where we are. Uh, Ken, I had a really good time. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I, I, I can tell from the comments and on Twitter people were having a blast. Uh, I think someone said from Uruguay to Argentina or something. We have people all over the world uh, paying attention. So I just want to say thanks very much. Thank you very much, Eric, for, for having me. And I really look forward to the conference. I think it's going to be a blast. Oh, yeah. Hey, I should probably be plugging the conference. Hey, uh, don't forget that December 9th and 10th, leanstartup.co in San Francisco. Uh, if you want to come, we have six full days of stuff that you can do if you're really obsessive about it, or you can just come from the main conference, which is that Monday and Tuesday, December 9th and 10th. Kent and I will both be there along with a lot of other cool speakers. Check out the website, leanstartup.co, and we will see All right. Bye-bye. Thanks to everyone for joining us today. This wraps up our show. Please join us again for the next webcast, Putting the Lean in Lean Startup, on November 18. In the meantime, visit leanstartup.co for more information on the Lean Startup Conference held on December 9 to 11 in San Francisco. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>